Welcome to New Life Assembly of God Media Ministry. We are glad that you are here. We believe the Word of God is relevant and life-changing, and we hope you can be blessed by this message. Praise the Lord. If you'll take your scriptures in hand and turn with me to Genesis chapter 41, we're continuing our series, Advancing Through Adversity, as we are looking at the life of Joseph, and tonight's message is titled, God's Representative. When you hear the word ambassador, what do you think of? You might automatically think of a politician or a diplomat that serves as a representative of his country in a foreign land. And there are, uh, 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 ambassadors are a sort of go-between uh, uh, that represents the government of one country uh, to the government of another country. Nowadays, we also hear about brand ambassadors, right? Usually a celebrity or a well-known person who serves as a representative for a company to increase the brand awareness of that company and its product to a larger audience. Likewise, the scripture calls us ambassadors of Christ. As Christians, we should see ourselves as representatives of God in a foreign uh, culture, in a foreign land, uh, in, in, in our case, in an ungodly culture. We are in a series, as I said, in the life of Joseph, and he was definitely a representative of God in the foreign and pagan culture of Egypt. Now, in our last message, we considered the story of Joseph's interpretation of the dreams of two of Pharaoh's servants, one of them a baker and the other one a cupbearer, and the baker's dream, the interpretation was in three days he would be put to death, and of course, the cupbearer's dream was interpreted that in three days he would be restored, and just as Joseph interpreted those dreams, God fulfilled them, and of course, he asked the cupbearer, when you're restored, remember me to Pharaoh. And when the cupbearer was restored, he certainly suddenly had a memory lapse and forgot all about Joseph. And Joseph remained uh, in prison uh, for several years thereafter. And so um, after some time passed, Pharaoh had a very disturbing dream. And in one of those dreams, he, he saw seven skinny cows uh, that were overtaken by seven fat cows. And the skinny cows ate up uh, the fat cows. And uh, in another one, he saw seven ripe or full heads of, of grain grow on a stalk, but then seven heads of thin, weakly grain grew up and consumed the seven good heads of grain. And uh, in Genesis 41.8, we read, the next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dreams. So he called for the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And when Pharaoh told them the dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. And so he remained very concerned and very anxious and the whole palace was in a state of confusion over these troubling and cryptic dreams. And the conscience of the cupbearer or butler was suddenly stirred and he remembered somebody that could interpret dreams. He remembered Joseph and he told Pharaoh, how Joseph had accurately interpreted both his dream and the dream of the baker. And so Pharaoh quickly called for Joseph to come to the palace. And on hearing Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph told the king that God is the one who would give the interpretation and make the meaning clear. And then Joseph shared the interpretation of the dream. There would be seven years of plentiful 
harvest. But those seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine. Then Joseph takes an amazing step. He advises the king how to prepare for this challenge. He tells him what you need to do during the seven years, you need to store up the seven years of abundance, store up so that you have sufficient for the seven years of famine. So here's a man who had been in the king's prison in the morning, and now he's acting as the king's personal advisor in the afternoon. Folks, when God's got a plan for your life, it may seem for a long time that nothing is happening. But when the fullness of time has come, then suddenly God brings to pass all that he had told. We think it's suddenly because we just see the fulfillment, but we don't realize God's been working all along to bring us to that point. And so from the prison in the morning to being Pharaoh's advisor in the afternoon. And so he outlines for Pharaoh a plan to basically raise taxes for the next seven years, taking 20% of the lamb's production and storing it away in the royal granaries so that they would have sufficient reserve for the seven years of famine. And we're gonna pick up the story in Genesis chapter 41, verses 37 through 40. Joseph's suggestions were re well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God this is a pagan king this is a king who worships idols and he says is there anybody else like Joseph a man who is filled with the Spirit of God then Pharaoh said to Joseph since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are you will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you only I sitting on my throne will have a higher rank than you so we've got Pharaoh and suddenly we have Joseph who was in prison in the morning and now he is promoted to basically prime minister over all of Egypt by the evening isn't that amazing how God works? So jo Joseph's story reveals to us several key principles for representing God in the ungodly culture in which we live today. And the first thing I want us to see is our responsibility to live as saints in a secular culture. We have God's solution to the problems that plague our society. Joseph lived as a saint in a secular culture. He never compromised himself. He, he never gave in to the pressures to become like what was happening around him. And he had God's solution for the problem facing the world of his day, this extreme famine that was about to come. You know, as I read and reread the story uh, uh, this past week, I was struck by the spiritual parallels um, between Joseph's time and our society. You know, for instance, the U.S. has an enjoyed great abundance in that we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Spiritually in this past, the country has been blessed with a proliferation of the gospel, an abundance of the gospel. America was once the nation that was sending the gospel around the world. Unfortunately, we're now in need of missionaries bringing the gospel to the United States. But, but folks, you know, even though we were once a land of abundance, not only uh, as far as economy but spiritually the famine years are quickly upon us just look at the unprecedented shortages over the last couple of years as one news source reported these shortages included toilet paper pet food 
microchips, building materials, meat and dairy, potatoes, and who could forget the baby food shortage? You know, shortage after shortage. We've never seen things like that, right? But then suddenly we're seeing it. There were times over the past three years that we actually saw on the news videos of empty store shelves that looked like third world countries. Inflation in 2022 was at an all-time record. Revelation 6, 5, and 8 prophesies a time is coming on this world of scarcity and hunger and unprecedented high prices for basic foods to where you'll not even be able to afford to buy a loaf of bread. You can read it in Revelation 6. And we're already beginning to see the rumblings of these things. The Global Network Against Food Crisis reports the lethal combined impact of conflict, extreme weather, and economic shocks are fast moving the world towards famine that will affect multiplied millions. As the end of time prophesied in scripture grows nearer, times of global crisis will increase. And Jesus said in Luke 21, 26, people will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth. And the increasing signs of the end demand a response now from the people of God. Like Joseph, we have the only answer that the world needs. We know the one who is the source of peace in the time of crisis, a peace that this world is desperately in need of. When we are seeing um, rates of depression and anxiety that are just going through the roof, especially among young people who feel like there is no hope for the future, we have the answer that the world needs and it is Jesus. We know the one who is the source of peace. We know the one who can save from the terrible times that are coming upon this earth. We know the one who can save from the judgment that will one day come upon the earth. And we need to stand up and share that answer, just like Joseph shared the answer. We need to live and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit so the world will look to us for answers. Look what Pharaoh said. Here's this pagan king, this idol worshiper, and he seeks Joseph out, a man of God, for answers. And he says, who else is there like this man? A man full of the Holy Spirit. Folks, there ought to be something so different about our lives. The hand of God ought to be so evident upon us that the world will begin to seek us out, that our coworkers will come to us and say, you know what, I see that you're a man or a woman of faith and I'm going through something, can you pray for me? That ought to be happening by what they see in our lives. Or they ought to come to us and, and ask us, what do you think about and share the situations that they're facing? You know, once it could have been said that the United States was a Christian nation because in the major part of society, uh, most people had some kind of Christian background, had been raised in Sunday school or what have you. But we are now living in what's called a post-Christian era where the great majority of people today have not been raised in church and have no biblical foundation for their life. So our culture in many ways is parallel or similar to the culture of Egypt 
in Joseph's day. And we need to ask, are we representing our Lord with the same kind of supernatural anointing and confident wisdom that Joseph demonstrated? If we are, then one thing is abundantly clear. Even the person farthest from God, the man or woman with little or no connection to spiritual things, will come to the end of his or her resources and will be looking for answers somewhere. And in that moment, they will take note of the hope, the peace, the purpose, and the confidence of the person who knows God. And they will come and they will see that in our life and they'll want what we have and they'll ask about the secret of living such a life. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Wait a minute, why would they ask us to give a reason for that hope? It's because they see that hope in us. No matter what's happening in our life, no matter what's happening in the world, they see something different. They see hope in us, and they're like, how can you have such hope with all of this going on? And then we have the opportunity to answer, to point them to the one who is the answer. Of course, he goes on to say, do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So he's saying, you know what? It's not just about the talk, but you have to live a life that it's slander-proof, basically. You know, you've got to live a life that, that really reflects the truth of God and his word so that there is no reason to question or accuse the testimony uh, of your life, but certainly we need to be living as bastions of hope, bright and shining lights in the midst of the darkness and chaos of this world so that people will see a difference and they'll seek us out. So our responsibility uh, uh, as saints in a secular culture is to stand out and to be the, uh, to point people to the answer. I want us to see our response as saints living in a secular culture. You know, when we use the word secular, it's a broad term that talks about all things that are not spiritual or not Christian. At one time, secular simply meant not part of the church. In our time, secular has come to indicate a hostility towards Christianity and the Bible because we know that there is in society today, particularly here in the United States and of course in other countries as well where the persecution is even greater, but there's a hostility towards Christianity and the Bible. We see this in our politics. Our uh, we see it in media. We see it in entertainment. You can see in some of the themes that come through how they're uh, putting down and belittling uh, Christians as being narrow-minded or, or uh, intolerant and what have you. And so you can see that hostility. Now, but when you go back you know, to the, our nation's founders, they established uh, in the Constitution freedom of religion, and they codified it in the Constitution. The First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the reason for that amendment in the Constitution was to protect the church from the infringement of the government. Because 
One of the reasons that uh, the pilgrims came over here on the Mayflower was to escape religious persecution. So they wanted to make sure that freedom of worship was protected. So that was the original intent of that amendment. They wanted churches to have protection for their beliefs and the practice of their beliefs free from government control or restrictions. But nowadays, the secular mindset has evolved and reinterprets our precious freedom of worship to mean freedom from religion. So freedom of religion has now been interpreted to be freedom from religion. Spirituality, they assert, must be completely divorced from public life. Politicians are even encouraged to govern without reference to their spiritual values that shape their lives. So for instance, if a politician believes in biblical marriage, or if a politician believes that life begins at conception and to, to take that life would be sin, which is what the Bible teaches, um, that politician should not allow that to affect their political views. That's the mindset today. You can't bring your values, you can't bring your beliefs into your politics. Hey, wait a minute. When this nation was established, this nation was established by people who believed in God and who held strongly to those values. But this nation has become secular. Even our children in public schools are being educated in the facts of life without being given a moral uh, value system. So we teach children about the biology of sex, but we don't give them a moral uh, system to know how to protect themselves from the physiological expressions of sex. Are you following what I'm saying? You can't bring your Christian beliefs into the public arena. And this secularism is much deeper than our politics. It's the result of a radical shift in the worldview that began to actually emerge about 300 years ago with the age of enlightenment and the dawn of the scientific era where human beings began to see themselves as the center of all things and humanism emerged believing that, that uh, the answer to our problems are in ourselves, that humankind has their, the answer to all of our problems. And, and, and as that mindset began to emerge, then God was pushed to the periphery of life and his word was increasingly disregarded because science became the authority and the authority of scripture began to be uh, diminished and, and people began to look to science for answers rather than to the word of God. And then Fasting, fast forward to today, relativism and pluralism are now the prevailing philosophies in our culture, but it's all grown out of this shift that started 300 years ago. Relativism does not believe that there's any absolute truth. There's no standard of right and wrong. What's true for you is true for you because you believe it. And what's true for me is true for me because I believe it. And so they say, everybody has their own truth. You live your truth. Have you heard that? You live your truth. You know, everybody has their own truth. And then pluralism says that all beliefs are equal. So your belief is just as valid as my belief and anybody else's belief. They're all equal, all right? 
Then, of course, we also have materialism that pervades our society, and, and, and that asserts that the material world is what's important, the material world is real, the invisible world is unreal and may not even exist, thereby excluding any supernatural or divine reference point for life. And that's the society in which we live, a pagan society, just like Egypt was a pagan society. As Christians, however, we must respond by challenging people to rethink their assumptions that they are the center of the universe and that they have the answer for mankind's problems. We must show the way to be connected with the eternal and live in such a way that those around us realize that life is not just about having a good job, making money, uh, building a family, and having memorable experiences because that's basically how the world lives today. In the end, as Solomon says, no matter how much money you have or what experiences you've had, it is all vanity. It is all emptiness, like chasing the wind. And, and, and people are going to come to that realization. And that's one of the reasons that depression is so high, because they attain what they thought was the meaning of life, and they found themselves empty. As Christians, we know that only the Lord truly satisfies, that only in the Lord is there fullness of joy, that only in the Lord is indefinable peace, a peace that passes all understanding. And, and our richness of life should cause those impoverished by secular thinking to see the emptiness of their own way apart from God. As Christians, we have to live differently as representatives of Christ so that our lives, as Paul says, will be an aroma of Christ, an aroma of Christ that will draw people to him. I don't know if it's still there, but there was a bakery on 441 in uh, North Miami Beach some years ago uh, at one of the, the large uh, bread baking companies down there. And when I used to work in Miami, I would drive down 441 and you would, bread is my weakness, unfortunately, but you would smell the aroma of bread baking in the morning. And man, your car just wanted to take you over there and give me some fresh bread, you know? It just smelled so delicious. That aroma was just alluring. And our lives, Paul says, are supposed to be an aroma of Christ, something so attractive that it just draws unbelievers to us. See, as, as Christians, we really have three possible responses to the world. Two of them are wrong, and the third one is demonstrated in the life of Joseph. The first response we can take to living in a pagan or secular society is that we can be intimidated. We often feel intimidated by unbelievers, intimidated by their arguments, intimidated by their questions, intimidated by their rejection. So, for instance, that well-respected professor who mocks a Christian worldview can cause a Christian student to fall silent on campus. That agnostic person at work can make the dedicated saint feel foolish with their well-informed arguments. The failures of well-known church leaders that are so publicized by media are often thrown in the face of men and women of faith with a sneer. And so sometimes we back up from being identified as Christian. 
The constant barrage of media that denounces Christian beliefs or makes Christians look narrow-minded silences many believers. In the face of these challenges, some of us look for a hole to crawl in, or like Ezekiel, Elijah, excuse me, for a cave to hide in. We don't abandon our faith, but we just privatize it. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to shine brightly for Christ. But the intimidation is not always from the outside. Some of us are silenced by our own internal conflict. We find the thought of being different and living different from others overwhelming and intimidating. We want so much to be like that we cover up our commitment to Christ and maybe go along with that inappropriate joke at work without saying anything. Or we go out with the gang when they're going for drinks after work and we try to fit in with what they're doing. We want so much to be liked and acceptance is so compelling that we just don't stand up for Christ and we don't stand up for truth. We may also be intimidated by our own sense of inadequacy. When we look at the huge problems in the world, war, poverty, crime, uh, sexual immorality, social change, and the message of Jesus and his love some, can sometimes seem so weak to us, and we say, can this really make a difference? But Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But you know what? We can become unsure that the gospel of Christ can really meet the needs of, uh, of men and women uh, who are torn up by life, whose marriages are in shred, whose life is turned upside down. And, and, and so we're not willing to tell our searching friend that Christ and the life of following him is so rich that it's worth giving up everything in order to gain. And if our faith is lukewarm, then there is not much to attract the world. What attracts the world is when we burn hot, when we burn brightly for Jesus. You know, Joseph was not intimidated. The power projected in the throne room of Pharaoh might have caused him to soften his declaration of God's sufficiency. He might have felt that it was inappropriate to talk about the God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh in this company of people who worshipped idols, who worshipped other gods, or, or the wise men of Egypt, that they would just laugh at his declaration and thus his message would be compromised. But Joseph wasn't intimidated. When Pharaoh told him the dream, he says, the God that I serve, he will reveal the clear meaning of this dream. Joseph stood tall for God, and as a result, a nation was saved. We need to stand tall in our faith and not back down because of intimidation. A second response that saints in a secular society may adopt is isolation. You know, the, the, the needy, ugly world that surrounds us sometimes fails to move us with compassion. Instead, we become repelled and repulsed by, by the ugliness of sin in the world. So we withdraw, hiding our heads in the sand, hoping that the ugliness will fade from memory. 
for years, committed Christians did this. They put their head in the sand. They abandoned public schools. They abandoned politics. They abandoned media. They abandoned uh, 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 entertainment. They abandoned social agencies. And they gave it into the hands completely of the ungodly. A mistaken sense of separateness made Christians fall silent with their witness and influence. And secular people of good intentions perhaps, but nevertheless without commitment to God, have had a free hand in shaping the mind of America. We as Christians have kept our Christianity private. We have compartmentalized our life. Christianity is for church, and then there is the real world. And so we have stayed silent, but the world has not stayed silent. The world has loudly and blatantly proclaimed their message of sin and immorality and godlessness. And it has taken over the mindset of our world. We are now reaping the consequences of our isolation. Jesus commissioned us to be salt in our society. We are the salt of the earth. Salt serves no useful purpose while it remains in the salt shaker. It has to be shaken out and applied to the food. We need to be shaken out of the church and applied to the world. We need to get involved in education. We need to get involved in politics. Uh, we need to get involved in media. We need to get involved in entertainment. God needs to raise up uh, and we need to answer the call to go into business and be an influence for God in business. In every arena of life, Christians need to rise up and be the salt of the earth. Salt is a preserving agent that keeps rot from overtaking. And if we stay silent, the rot of sin and immorality just continues to overtake and corrupt the world. We need to rise up in all arenas of life and be an influence for Christ. Jesus called us to be the light of the world. But he said, you know what? A light that is put under a basket is of no value. The light needs to be held up high so that it can dispel the darkness. Folks, we need to stand up tall as the light of the world to dispel the darkness of sin and the enemy in the world. Now, the third response is the one that Joseph practiced and shows us, and that one is infiltration. So we can have intimidation or isolation, but the right response that God calls us to is infiltration. Joseph lived a life of faith and integrity, and his witness was evident wherever he went. In Potiphar's house, Potiphar saw the hand of God on him, and how God blessed him, and so Potiphar promoted him. In prison, the warden saw the hand of God on Joseph, and so he promoted him. Pharaoh saw the anointing of God on Joseph, and so he promoted him. See, when the king called, Joseph was ready. And even though there was great risk to say what he said, if Pharaoh didn't like the interpretation, he could have had Joseph executed on the spot, but Joseph was not deterred by the risk. When the king made Joseph his prime minister, it wasn't all glory. 
There was a tremendous amount of work and responsibility on the shoulders of a 30-year-old young man to be the prime minister of what was probably the greatest nation at that time. But he was not deterred by the work. He embraces the call and he becomes a key man in the plan of God both for Egypt and for the preservation of the nation of Israel. He infiltrated this pagan society and allowed God to use him there. Infiltration of our world is a choice that calls for wisdom and balance. How do we relate to unbelievers without being compromised? Joseph had to live among idolaters, but he stood firm in his devotion to God and in his integrity. How do we love sinful people without approving of their sin? You know, several years ago, I was invited to a birthday party for someone who was involved in leadership in our church, and uh, their family, the rest of their family was not saved, and their family was throwing this birthday party for them. And so when I arrived, unbeknownst to me, there was alcohol there as well, but I wasn't going to make a big show of the situation. So I sat down and, and um, you know, uh, talked with the family members and what have you, and I distinctly remember one of the family members, a sister of the lady that attended our church, um, came and sat down right next to me and she was extremely worldly. I know that she came from a background of having a drug addiction. She was very sexually moral and what have you. And she sat down right next to me and she took her long neck bear and put it on the table right in front of me like that. And she started drinking and talking real loud. And, and I just talked to her and fellowshiped with her. And you know, a few weeks later, we were having Teen Challenge here, and Teen Challenge is a Christian um, program that helps people with uh, substance abuse issues, drugs and alcohol and what have you. And so, you know, her sister in, that came to the church invited her. The lady came um, at the end of the service when, uh, when the director of Teen Challenge gave the altar call. The lady came forward and she gave her heart to Christ, and she later told me, she said, you know, I was testing you when I sat next to you with my bear. And she said, it made such an impression on me that you did not judge me or condemn me. And she said, and that's why I was open to coming to church when my sister invited me. Folks, the world is watching you. I didn't participate in their sin. I wasn't drinking alcohol or anything like that. But I sat there and I just shined for Jesus. You know, I just talked to them and loved on them and, and, and had fellowship with them. And it made an impact because she knew I was a pastor. She knew I was her sister's pastor. And it made an impact that I wasn't being judgmental or condemnatory to them. So we can love sinners without loving or participating in their sin. Jesus ate. Jesus ate with sinners, right? So how do we learn the culture and speak to the culture without being a part of it? Jesus uh, prayed for us to infiltrate secular society while remaining separate or holy unto God. In John 17, verses 15 through 18, he said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by their truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus is saying, you know what? We, we live in the world, but we don't belong to the world. And he's praying and he's saying, God, protect them in the world. Keep them from the influence of the evil one. But send them into the world, just like you sent me 
into the world. So folks, we cannot choose to be intimidated or isolated by the world. Jesus is telling us that we must infiltrate the world for Christ. Have you infiltrated your world with the message of Christ? Are you standing for Christ in your workplace? If you're a young person, are you standing for Christ in your school or college? I, I don't mean just being sexually pure or avoiding alcohol or not cursing, even though those things are important and they're a part of living a life that is a Christian testimony. But there has to be more. At the core of our life, is Christ the meaning of your existence? If Jesus is not the center of your choices, your morality just becomes another alternative lifestyle. But standing for Christ means taking a hard look at how we're living our life at our goals, at, at, at our career goals, and asking if you're planning for financial success or are you building the kingdom of Jesus? Are you planning for kingdom impact? What are you living for? Are you really living according to kingdom values? Because sometimes we're Christians and we go to church, but we're living by the values of the world. Our primary focus is career success and career advancement, and I'm not saying that that's bad, but our primary goal is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So our primary goal has to be living for kingdom impact, for infiltrating this world with a testimony for Jesus Christ. Standing for Christ means taking a hard look at, at our relationship with others. Does it reflect the love of Christ in all of our relationships? Do we reflect the love of Christ in our marriage? Do we reflect the love of Christ to our children? Because that's going to be a great determining factor as to whether or not our children want to serve the Lord. Do we reflect the love of Christ in our friendships? Do we reflect the love of Christ in our our work relationships? Do, do unbelievers see a difference in us? Do unbelievers see a person who lives with hope, a person who lives with peace, a person who is filled with love, a person who is connected to eternity and lives with heaven in view? We are called to be saints in a secular society. So we need to live like Joseph so the world will seek us out for the answers they so desperately need, realizing that we have the answer that they need. We need to infiltrate the world as agents of the kingdom of heaven, standing as men and women of God, shining brightly in the midst of the darkness that surrounds us, lifting up the hope of Jesus Christ. We are called to be saints in a secular society and make an impact for the kingdom of God. Do you want to make a difference for the kingdom of God? If that's your heart, would you stand to your feet? And let's just take a moment and say, God, show me how I can infiltrate where you have placed me and be an influence for your kingdom to make a difference in the lives of those around me. Lift up your voice and pray that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all of these that are standing because I thank you that their standing indicates that they truly have a heart for you and that they want to make a difference for your kingdom, Lord God. Father, I pray for each and every one of us as we stand before you making this commitment tonight that you would give us wisdom to show us the ways in which we can infiltrate the place where you have put us, Lord God, so that we can make a difference for the kingdom of God so that we can be salt, so that we can be light in that, in that setting, Lord God, and so that the name of Jesus Christ can be lifted up and that lives can be touched and changed for your glory. Use us, Lord God, to make a difference for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll see you on Sunday. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you were blessed by this message, would you consider giving a gift to help support our ministry? You can text any amount to 954-516-1522. That's 954-516-1522. Thank you, and we hope you will join us again.